Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning, church. How we doing? Decent. Okay, great. Um, my name is Sean, and I am one of the pastors on our team here. And just to situate us a little bit today, we are in the second Sunday of Easter, the season known as Eastertide. This season lasts between Easter and Pentecost, and there are seven Sundays or, or 49 days between these two pivotal celebrations in the church calendar. The resurrection at Easter that we celebrated last week isn't something that can be contained or celebrated in just one day. That's why it needs to continue to be celebrated over these seven Sundays of the Eastertide season, with the Feast of Easter outlasting the fast of Lent. Lent is only six weeks, Easter is seven weeks, and so that is what we will continue to do. And I alluded to this at the end of our Easter services. You heard Dave there. We are going to spend the entire season of Eastertide in the book of Revelation. (laughs) Woo, yeah. And that, you know, okay, well, almost the entire season. We have a guest speaker coming, and you don't do that to your guest speaker. (laughs) Say, hey, come on over. Would you preach Revelation while you're here? It's like... Come to my house, would you mow the lawn and take out the trash, right? So we'll have one break, but other than that, we are going to spend the rest of this season looking at the lectionary texts in Revelation. And I said last week that Revelation was everyone's favorite book, obviously tongue-in-cheek, but let's face it, right? Revelation is strange and scary and, uh, like Claire said, daunting, right? Uh, We generally are not sure what to do with it, right? I don't know what to do with Revelation. So... Since we're going to be spending such a long time looking at this book, and because we believe when you have the proper tools, it won't be so scary or daunting, today's going to look a little bit different than a typical sermon. We are going to spend a good chunk of today's sermon understanding the whole book of Revelation, and they've only given me like 20 minutes to do it, but uh, we're going to look at the whole plot, the key characters, we're going to look at themes and, and imagery, much of which is related to our introduction of the text for today but hopefully it's going to set us up well for the rest of the series. So to best tackle some of these big topics concerning this important but often misunderstood book, I've created a list of what I think are the top questions someone might have approaching Revelation. So first important question, is it Revelation or Revelations? No S, that's right, that's right. So it is one revelation from God. When it's just one of those things, once you hear it once, you, can, you can't stop hearing people say revelations. It's only one revelation. If you take one thing away from today, it's the book of Revelation, okay? Just remember that. <laughs> Next question, okay? So you don't have to shout out answers to this or anything, but we're going to do a little revelation word association, okay? What are the words that come to mind when you think of the book of Revelation. Okay, think about it, think about it. All right, I put some up here on the slide, okay? Maybe uh, the end times, rapture, the four horsemen, the antichrist, 666, judgment, second coming, heaven, beast, dragon, harlot, dispensationalism, left behind series, uh, fire, right? 
Um, we could go on and on and on, and Pete has mentioned this before in past sermons, so we better get an update on it, but a few days ago, the Rapture Index was at 188, okay? It's this website that correlates, you know, what's going on in Russia with Satanism, all this stuff. How likely is the Rapture? So we're at 188, which apparently is bad, or good, I don't know. Um, rapture, though, Rapture and Antichrist definitely two of the most popular words that we think of when we think of the book of Revelation. But here's the thing. Neither of those words show up in this entire book. Why, why is that? Why, why do we only talk about rapture and antichrist? You know, so when you hear people that are experts on Revelation only talking about rapture and antichrist, just pay attention to that, okay? Um, so next question, next question. What type of book is the book of Revelation. We tend to know there are all sorts of different types of literature or, or genres in scripture. And uh, we have you know, books of the law, books of wisdom, prophetic books. We have poetry, gospels, epistles, letters, right? And knowing what type of book you are reading within the Bible often helps you understand it better. You wouldn't read a gospel passage the same way you'd read a psalm. You wouldn't read a letter from Paul the same way you'd read like the most boring book of the Bible, Second Chronicles. Um, <laughs> Revelation is a bit tricky in this sense, though, because it's a bit of a hybrid. We, we all know it's pretty strange, but it consists of three different types of genres all put together. An apocalypse, big scary word, a prophecy, and a letter. So again, we'll start with that scary word of apocalypse. Revelation 1.1, it says this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this word uh, on the first slide there that is bold and underlined as revelation is where we get the title for this book is the Greek word apocalypsis. It's where we get the word apocalypse. But in this context, it does not mean destruction, does not mean the, the end of the world. It does not mean like Armageddon with Bruce Willis, right? It is not what is going on. What this word means is it means unveiling. It means unmasking. It means to show what lies underneath the surface. So this revelation, revealing what is under the surface, it, the text here shows us that it comes from God through Jesus to an angel and then to John, who shares it with the seven churches and ultimately gets to share it with us. And it is about revealing who God is and how he continues to work in the world and ultimately what will happen in the reconciliation of all things. And there are, are other types of apocalyptic literature all throughout scripture, the book of Daniel maybe being the most famous, but even Jesus uses uh, apocalyptic imagery and language in Mark 13. And, and what this type of language and imagery does is it, is it expresses and creates hope by offering a critique of the present situation that people are going through. It often critiques those who are in power and calling the faithful to defiance and challenging them to remain confident in not only that God will resolve and defeat their present evil, but in God's ultimate plans of redemption. So the point of apocalyptic literature isn't doom and gloom and fire and brimstone, or to tell us how the world is ending. It's to show us what we're not seeing about what's going on in the world now. 
with the hope that it will reveal the truth about what we are going through in our present realities and provide context and hope for what is going to come in the unknown future. So is revolution, uh, revelation apocalyptic? Yes, just not how we tend to think about the word apocalypse. So what about prophecy? For, for the author John, who we'll talk about in a few minutes, he sees himself not only as a Christian prophet, but he is standing in the tradition of all of the Old Testament prophets who have gone before him. The book of Revelation contains all sorts of allusions to the Old Testament. And what John does is he takes up these prophecies and he reinterprets them in light of the revelation that he has received which is what Old Testament prophets did in the past, ones who came after ones before they reinterpret them based on what is going on. But when we talk about Revelation being prophetic, we don't mean that it's going to uh, predict how the world is going to end in explicit detail. You know, we're going to come back and talk about this perspective, but prophecy in the biblical tradition, tradition is not uh, primarily about making pronouncements or predictions about the future. Prophecy is speaking words of comfort or challenge on behalf of God to the people of God in their concrete setting and situation and place in their historical situation. Sometimes prophecy comes with visions of the future, but that's not saying, hey, this is definitely how the world is going to play out, but they're a means to an end, means used by the prophet to warn them and to comfort them. So when we talk about Revelation being prophetic, it is often about calling people back rather than what we tend to think about as predicting the future, that the Old Testament prophets called the people of Israel back to covenant faithfulness with God. And here in Revelation, we'll hear John the prophet call them back to do what they did at first, to remember their first love. So it's often looking backwards more than it is looking forwards. And then thirdly, this book is a letter. It's a circular letter to seven specific churches that are spread across much of modern-day Turkey, the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The entire letter was meant to be read in each one of these communities and probably several others, but it also contained a specific message for each one of those churches. Eugene Peterson, he boils down the structure that happens in each one of those messages as containing an affirmation, like, hey, you're doing great. This is something you're doing really well. A correction, hey, you're missing the mark here, or that's kind of weird. Stop doing that. Uh, and then he also ends with a motivating promise, with the hope that this would show them how their issues in a local context are a part of God's purposes in establishing his kingdom. And then the other thing that's a little bit different for us reading this letter several centuries later is that it was designed to be read out loud, the whole thing. I mean, imagine that. This, this would be like a play, you know, where the audience is immersed in the world of the drama, immersed in the captivating imagery of the letter. That makes a big difference how you understand it than reading a few verses here or there and out of context. Okay, so next question. How do people feel about Revelation? To me, there are kind of two camps of people, those who are obsessed with Revelation and those who ignore it. I don't know which one you are. Uh, I like to think of this as the CrossFit principle. Um, you know, when someone does CrossFit, they tell you about it like all the time, 
what the workout was this morning, what they're eating, you know, all this type of stuff. And if you don't do CrossFit, you tend not to talk about it, uh, you know, or care about it, right? And so it's the same thing with Revelation. You know, there are those who are obsessed with, they've, they've hyper-canonized it. It's the most important book of the Bible reveals all of God's secrets to us. Or, as I imagine many of us might fall into the other category, is we've pretty much decanonized it. We've taken it out of our Bible. We don't read it. We don't just go ahead and choose to look at it. We've, we've, you know, we've put it under the rug. We've stuffed it in the closet. We're not talking about or reading Revelation. I'm right there with you. It's intimidating. It's confusing. It's something we're not eager to spend a lot of time with. Our hope is that after this Eastertide season, you might feel differently and find a good middle ground between those two principles. So how are we supposed to read and interpret Revelation? There's all this vivid imagery. There are specific references. They're pretty strange. Uh, there's a couple kind of schools of thought about how to interpret them. One of them is that Revelation should be read as predictive, that the events in this book, they predict how history will unfold. This could mean that, that these events between when Revelation was written and you and I are alive, that they have already happened throughout history, or it could mean that they are future events after you and I, that is how history will unfold into the end times. Another way to approach it is with a kind of historical perspective that, that these events that the book talks about are only relevant to the first century audience and listeners, that uh, Revelation was a document for its own time, that's where it should stay. But I think the best way to do it is really more of a synthesis of these approaches with a specific emphasis on understanding that Revelation is poetic and political and pastoral all together. So to do that, we have to first understand the contemporary interpretation of Revelation in its message to first century realities, to first century people, and we have to keep an eye on God's promises for the future that are present in Revelation. So in this way, we see that Revelation as a book is timeless, that it is able to speak powerfully to the first century listeners, but because it is living and active in God's word, it can speak powerfully to you and I as well. A helpful way that many people talk about Revelation is they compare it to a political cartoon. So with political cartoons, if you are not acquainted with the people and events it's written about, you know, the joke gets lost on you. You don't, you don't know what's going on. You have to understand things in their context to fully understand their meaning. So I, I grabbed one here that's actually from Dr. Seuss uh, during World War II. Uh, and I don't know if you guys can see that, but the, it's mom reading kind of a nursery rhyme about Adolf the wolf. And she has a shirt that says America first and says, oh, we don't care about those children. Those are foreign children. They don't matter to us. Dr. Seuss wanted America to get involved in the war before Pearl Harbor. And so he was trying to, to say that if you know what's going on, if you know about nursery rhymes, if you know about Adolf Hitler, if you know about all America first, this political cartoon makes sense. If we don't understand the references that are being talked about in Revelation, it doesn't make sense to us. So, next question is, what about left behind in the late great planet Earth? Um, so my short answer to this question is no. Um, um, just generally no. Uh, um, so depending upon when you grew up, you know, your people or books like uh, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, you know, uh, they're famous for their depictions of the end times that were 
allegedly based on the book of Revelation. I don't know if you guys had these type of things in Oregon. I encountered a lot of billboards in Texas, you know, that let you know when the world was ending, a specific date. Uh, like, hey, heads up, May 21st. Uh, and you see there's a little sticker on there, the Bible guarantees it, okay? Uh, uh, I guess we've made it past that judgment day. Um, when I lived in Waco, there was like this billboard that got updated, I don't know, five, six, seven times. We kept missing the date. I don't know. Um, so folks like these people um, generally in this area, they would fall into that kind of predictive category of approaching revelation. If you are familiar with the term dispensationalism that was on a slide earlier. This is kind of this theological understanding uh, and movement. It's pretty recent, just the last few hundred years, far from the time of Jesus. And, and it advocates that history is divided into these different ages or dispensations, describing different eras in which ways in which God related to people. Conveniently, these always tend to line up with when those people were alive and their priorities. I would argue it's not a very helpful understanding of Revelation, uh, this predictive category, as I mentioned that before. I don't have the next two hours to tell you all the reasons why, but I will say it is hard to square this perspective with the book and the actual text of Revelation and the overarching narrative of Scripture. So, logical next question then, is Revelation written in a mysterious code? Maybe you're a Da Vinci Code fan, you know, Robert Langdon, Dan Brown, right? I like those movies and books, but uh, again, probably not. Uh, actually, no. Uh, Revelation was not, uh, you know, sent to these seven churches as a mysterious text to be interpreted. It was sent to interpret the world of those readers. So another way of saying that is that the first readers and hearers, they didn't need a secret key to unlock Revelation. Revelation was the key by which they could unlock the real meaning of what was going on around them and respond to it faithfully. So then who is the author of Revelation? Uh, let's take a look at the text here, Revelation 1.4. It says, John. That was funny for me. I just wanted, I just like, that was a personal joke. Um, uh, <laughs> that was funny though. When you read the text, Dave, it just starts. You're just like, John. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, so this John uh, is probably not the John that we know about from earlier gospels. Uh, he's known as John of Patmos, which is the island in which this letter was written, or John the Divine, or John the Seer. And his, again, his exact identity is not known, but I love the way that Eugene Peterson talks about this John. He says, John's identity might be elusive, but we know what we need to know. John is a witness, a prophet, a theologian, a poet, and a pastor who is God-intoxicated, God-possessed, and God-articulate. So, last-ish question before we get to the plot and main characters here. Why is Revelation so weird? I mean, why? <laughs> Couldn't we made it simpler? You know, what's with all the weird pictures, the imagery, the number seven, the lamps, the bowls, the creatures? So we said before, the, these images were designed specifically for the social, political, cultural, and religious world of the first readers. They, they are actually counter imagery to the power and splendor of the Roman Empire and the Roman imperial religion. 
John is intentionally using images that, that play on their facts and fears and hopes and imagination of the specific people and churches that he's writing to. I mean, if we wrote a contemporary version of Revelation today, we would use images that are helpful to us. And if we gave it to the first century audience, they'd say, why is Revelation so weird? You know, they, they would be confused. They wouldn't understand it in the same way we don't understand all the references or images. So we see they're not, you know, literal descriptions, they're not codes, but they do have deep theological meaning and power. They are symbolic, but that does not make the realities that they point to any less real. Eugene Peterson, again, he, he has a great book that talks about Revelation. You can see it's influenced me, but he says, we are thick-skinned to the Spirit's breeze and dull-eared to the heaven-declared glory of God. He says, we need our imagination stirred through vivid symbols and images if we are to direct our souls to God. We have to be woken up, and that's why it's a little bit evocative and definitely weird. Now, every, every story has a plot, and you can break down the book of Revelation into a few acts. In the prologue, that's the kind of the cosmic stage being set, the story of Scripture up until this point, God's creation of the world and his all of its creatures, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the followers of Jesus forming communities. And in Act 1 of Revelation, Satan is on the move. In contrast to the life that comes from the Trinity of God, Jesus, and the Spirit, the unholy Trinity of Satan and the two beasts are seeking to seduce and deceive the faithful. In Act 2 is where John the prophet, he calls the churches back to faithfulness, reminds them of the decisive victory of the cross, Act 3 is the largest chunk here, it's chapter 6 through 20, and, and it talks about how Babylon falls, about how God defeats this unholy trinity, and God even defeats death itself, the ultimate enemy. And then in Act 4 is where God renews. Uh, Babylon, which is the city of oppression and death, is replaced by the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth, and the new culture of wholeness and life. Pain and sorrow are absent, oppression and death are gone. Humanity is restored, and God and the Lamb dwell permanently with the rest of creation. We're going to talk about all of those things in much more specific detail in the coming weeks, but the important characters are God, Jesus, who is often referred to as the Lamb, in the spirit, they're working together in one of the clearest depictions of the Trinity in Scripture. They are contrasted with the antagonist of that unholy Trinity, which is the dragon, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the land, so basically Game of Thrones. Uh, the dragon is depicted as an ancient serpent, represents Satan. The beast of the sea is called 666. It's representative of the Roman Empire, its military and political power. The beast of the land, where we get this phrase, the mark of the beast represents those who promote the Roman Empire and its imperial cult. But again, those are their contemporary connections, but they can be compared to things in our time and throughout history of, of systems of oppression and those who seek to contest God's way. I mean, we know tons of examples of people who have been compared with the beast or the Antichrist or the dragon or whatever. I put you know, a little bit of a list on here. We got Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama. Like every president since FDR, the Pope, Dr. Fauci. Uh, Disney was a new one I saw this week. Uh, Barney was new to me. Um, I was a little nervous to Google this on my computer, so I just used Kips. So if there's any weird search history, 
Um, there's QAnon stuff. That's for you, man. Okay. Um, so the other big kind of character or place uh, is Babylon, representative of Rome. Uh, Revelation portrays the Roman Empire as a system of violent oppression focused on conquest, maintained by violence. It's a system of political tyranny and economic exploitation. So John sees that the nature of Roman power is that if Christians are faithful witnesses to God, then inevitably they are going to crash or clash with this empire. Uh, Richard Bauckham is a theologian. He says that Revelation is the most powerful piece of political resistance literature from the period of the early empire. John is passing notes under the nose of the authorities without getting caught. He's using examples and images that early Christians would understand, but also presenting timeless truths for us to learn today. He has had an undeniable encounter with God, and because of it, he's created a literary masterpiece that has powerful symbols. It is the word of God that reflects timeless truths to his community then and ultimately to us today. Okay. That's it. You guys understand Revelation? Okay, perfect. Okay. I have like two minutes to talk about our text today. Okay. If this goes fast, just, it's going to happen. All right. Um, again, hopefully understand Revelation in its beauty, its weirdness, its context. Its, and part of what is so great about it is its, its desire to evoke this sense of wonder and imagination for how God might speak to us today. So Revelation 1, 4 through 7, our text today, is set up like a typical letter at that time. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, so who it's from, who it's for. And then we get a typical greeting like Paul might say in one of his letters. He says, grace and peace to you. But then things get taken up a notch. You know, oftentimes in an intro like this, you wouldn't get more than basic information, but uh, John infuses it with a deep sense of theology that establishes the authority for what he's about to say and previews the message of the entire book. John is writing to churches that he has an intimate knowledge of, again, situated in a particular time and place. They're probably made up of a persecuted minority, people indigenous to the area, a mix of Jewish and Gentile. They're living under Roman occupation, all of that, and they're trying to follow Jesus. Again, they're on the margins of the empire, probably poor, maybe experiencing religious persecution. And John is trying to encourage them to keep the faith, to, to continue to patiently endure and to resist assimilation into the ideology of the empire. John goes on to say, grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Skipping down over verse 7, Old Testament allusion, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. So John's doing a few key things here. He is contrasting the true supremacy of Jesus with the claims that are made about the empire in direct contrast to the imperial religion of Rome, worship of Caesar. He's being intentionally subversive. He's reminding these people not only of who they are, that they are priests in a heavenly kingdom, but of whose they are, that they are the beloved of the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. 
And while other letters might, uh, in the New Testament canon, might begin with the greeting connecting God and Jesus, John gives us the entire Trinity here, the seven spirits emphasizing the completeness of the Holy Spirit. And throughout this entire book, John emphasizes the centrality of Jesus, and he seeks to reveal this truth to these communities. He's writing and speaking within the context of the ancient Jewish belief that that God's sphere of being that we often think of as heaven and, and our sphere that we might call earth are not actually separated by a great gulf. They meet and merge together in all kinds of ways, and early Christians believe that in Jesus, he was the person and the place where heaven and earth met. And so everything flows from this central figure and ultimately from God the Father. And this he who is and who was and who is to come is is another way of saying Yahweh or or the great I am. It's hearkening back to that, but John doesn't stop there. He calls him the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, the end. Not only the eternal one, again contrasted with the imperial cult, but also the coming one. That this empire will end, but not God's empire. That God is the Alpha, the creator who was there in the beginning, but as the Omega who will set everything right in the end, in the reconciliation of all things, in the new heaven and new earth that we will learn about in just a few weeks. And this is meant to be a form of encouragement to these churches that no matter what they are going through, that God is in control. That in Jesus, as the firstborn of the dead, the inauguration of a new creation, a new social order, a new way of living and relating to one another in the world, that ultimately, this is a promise of the coming kingdom of God. So, in this book, we see that John, or through John, God is revealing more of himself to the seven churches, to the first century Christians, and to us today. At the use of evocative symbols and imageries, God is trying to wake us up from our slumber. The part of the intent of Revelation is to refurbish our sense of imagination. Wendell Berry, he puts it like this. He says, the imagination is our way into the divine imagination, permitting us to see holy as whole and holy what we perceive as scattered, as ordered, what we perceive as random that the more we use our imaginations, we connect with the beautiful creativity of a creative God, one who was there in the beginning, one who remains present to us in the midst of the trials and the disappointments and the suffering, and the one who will set all things right. That in this season of Eastertide, with the resurrection as the inauguration of a new creation, that God continues to reveal more of himself and what it means to be the church of the risen Christ. So, Antioch family, as we enter into this beautiful and captivated, captivating and hopefully less daunting book during this Eastertide season of celebration, may we wake up to all that God is doing in our lives. May we have a sense of wonder for him who was and is and is to come, and may we join him in the work of reconciliation of all things. Now, Pastor Pete is going to come up and lead us through the practice of communion.